question, Ati, is just, you know, tell us about who you are. Like, tell us who Ati is, your upbringing, Ati Saba, and how you were as a child, if you're inquisitive, outgoing. Um, just wanted to know, like, who you were. Sure. So I'm Ati Warku. I'm, um, I'm the founder of Seeds. I grew up in Ethiopia. So I grew up right outside of Addis in Adama. I lived there until I finished high school. I was one of seven. Um, yeah, well, we have kind of a, a complex family that is, you know, beautiful. And I have two adopted brothers and I have a half sister and then I have three brothers. So the whole, the whole becomes seven. Okay. Uh, but we all were, um, we were all very in age. So only about two of us were at home at the same time throughout. So I grew up closely with my brother, Adis, who is just 18 months older than me. And then my two other brothers were like much older, so they were gone already. And my younger brothers were very, very young. So it's kind of like, we all had like, it feels like we all had like shifts with our parents. <laughs> where And it's beautiful because, you know, you get a lot of time with them. Um, I was... I was a very nerdy child, um, so I really, um, and kind of like, um, I loved to read. Um, I was, there weren't a lot of girls around, like a lot of boys and my cousins and my brothers, so I used to play a lot by myself because none of the boys want to play with me. <laughs> um, so I was just generally like a, a kind of like nerdy but inquisitive kid. I used to, I used to love writing poetry. So I actually even did some like poetry competitions when I was like in third, fourth grade and stuff like that. Yeah. And my, my parents were really wonderful. They were very, very supportive from a very young age uh, of any like random little things I wanted to do, which I think kind of eventually comes to like, you know, being an entrepreneur and trying to, to do my own thing. But they were always supportive of like whatever little projects I wanted to do at school or at home. I ran like a little newspaper magazine distribution business when I was like 14 with wow. my dad. It was, um, yeah, it was just like, so I did a bunch of little things like that. Like, and I only remember about them when people ask me about my childhood, but I did that. And then my, my parents used to have a little store in our, like in our home and like I would run that sometimes. And then my dad used to work in late, later in his life. He passed away a long time ago, but later in his life, when I was a teenager, he was working on a microfinance project with the UN. So I used to do a lot of research for him. Um, stuff like that. I just didn't know like how all of that was gonna kind of like be so helpful to what I end up doing in the future. Yeah, but like I used to like do the um, numbers for him. Like I used to really love math, and at some point I decided that I was gonna help keep the family budget. Uh, so when I was like twelve, so I used to like do like the weekly grocery budget and like stuff like that. And it just I don't know, like it was I, I found it interesting. But again, like as an adult, it's helpful because I learned kind of like a lot of random things as a kid. Yeah. Well, it makes sense because you ended up becoming an engineering student, correct? So yeah, I studied computer science. I started as a computer science student and then I, I dropped out from there. But yeah, it really kind of, that inquisitiveness like never really stopped. Like even in terms of like, I learned how, you know, Muftan, like when you, yeah. yeah, so I learned that. I learned how to make Cepheid or like whatever, like. Yeah. All these like random things. And my mom would be like, why would you want to know that? Like, you're never going to use that skill. But it was just interesting. Like, I kind of loved arts and crafts. I went to a Catholic school, so we didn't have a lot of art programs. So that was kind of like my kind of like outlet for, for stuff like that. It's interesting to hear you say that because the one side you have a love for math mm -hmm. uh, and numbers and problem solving, but you also have like a love for crafts since, you know, art and um, designing and then you know you pursued fashion so it's like you were able to kind of like create uh, a mis like a match for the two things you love yeah um, how were you inspired to be to, to pursue fashion um, so that was kind of um, I was very tall and skinny since I was like 13 yeah 
And so like, and my mom had a lot of family who lived um, in Europe. So whenever they came to visit, they would be like, you should be a model. Mm -hmm. And my parents would be like, absolutely not. She's going to school. So I, so I didn't really like think of it as like something to do. And then I finished high school. I'm in college in Addi studying computer science. And then somehow I just met a bunch of people who are in fashion, just living in Addis. And then I was actually interested in the, the business side of it in the beginning. And that's kind of like what I wanted to be involved in. But a lot of, um, just a lot of people are like, you should try, like you should try to model or you should try to do this. So uh, that's kind of how I, like, it was kind of in my mind. But at this point, there was not a lot of money in fashion in Ethiopia. I was like, so this is like early 2000s. Mm. So I wasn't really interested to just be a model for this, the name of it. Like I was in school, I wanted to make money. So I'm like, if I can make money doing it, I'll do it. If not, it doesn't really, like, I don't want to just do it for the sake of it. So then I somehow got into doing beauty pageants and I did a few. And in one of the pageants I did, I met Anna Gitana and yeah, I mean, I was introduced to her by a few people before that, but she was a judge at one of the um, pageants I did. And I remember she came to me and said, "Um, if you really want to pursue modeling, there's real money in it and I can help you. She lived in South Africa at the time and said, you know, I can help you find agents in South Africa. Um, I was like, okay. And then um, six months later, I just flew to Johannesburg and I called her and I was like, I'm in South Africa. (laughs) You just flew there and you're like, I'm here? Yeah, I mean, I just left. I I mean, like, I had to convince my family and, you know, like, I've never left Ethiopia at this point. No, I've left Ethiopia a few times by then. But now I was like 19 or something. So I just convinced my mom. Um, I, there was a lot of negotiation. Yeah. I had to use my diplomatic skills and work through my other siblings and, you know, like all of that. And eventually I, uh, you know, you know, booked a trip there, you know, to stay there for a couple of weeks and figure out what to do. Um, and I got an agency there and then I moved there. Uh, shortly right after so that's where I started like my like actual proper like modeling career and I say actual proper because that's when I started making money doing it because before that it was just you know there was no money in Ethiopia there's money there now but when I started out there was not a lot of money Mm -hmm. um in it yeah how awesome to be inspired by individuals like Anna who's like there in like the modeling industry um, and I'm just so happy to see her like now doing like philanthropic work and inspiring yeah. others to, to be in the fashion industry, but from like a philanthropic perspective. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after modeling, uh, from what I believe you came back, uh, to Addis or you went to the States and pursued? I, came, I mean, I was back in Addis, you know, when I was living in South Africa, it's so close by, like I would go home a lot, but. I moved here to, to the U.S. in 2005. Okay. So I was in South Africa between 2003 and 2005, two years. Then I came to the U.S. and I continued working here. Okay. Yeah. And where did the inception of Seeds come from? Was it when you were working, going to school, or when you're going back and forth to Addis? I know there's a, a deep um, story that involves your mother. In, in yeah. Well, I think it really started when... I was just growing up seeing, so my parents didn't have a ton of money, but they did well. They sent us to really good schools, but we lived in a really poor neighborhood. Yeah. Um, so all my friends went to public school. I went to private school and I very quickly realized the difference in the opportunities we had because, you know, I was thinking about my future of going to college and, you know, what am I going to do? What do I want to do? Like, and you know, what a luxury, like now I I understand that. Like at the time I didn't realize that that was such a luxury that like not everybody had that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I had kids in my neighborhood who were dropping out of school because they couldn't afford to stay in school and stuff like that. So those issues were just always close to my heart and it was always in my mind. And when I was um, still doing, um, when I was still in school in Ethiopia, like doing computer science and when I was just starting on modeling, I remember talking about how I wanted to be involved in education. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And that is because of my own experience that I just mentioned, but also my parents are, you know, first generation to go to university. You know, they were married in the 60s. So they're in that like pre-Dug Ethiopian, like middle-class families that were just coming up. And my grandparents were illiterate. Like the women in my family, I'm only second generation of women who went to school. Because if most of us really trace it, we're probably only three or four generations. We're not, because most women in Tibet didn't really go to school until the 40s, like the 50s and 60s is really when women are like graduating high school Mm -hmm. and getting into either college or just even graduating high school and uh, and not being illiterate. So that was really like very close to my mind. Um, my grandparents on my dad's side were farmers. Mm. Um, so that was always close to me. You know, my grandfather is a, was a farmer and he used to come visit us and he lived in a village with no electricity, no running water. So that was always like that uh, difference was always very, very close. So mm. I never really took this opportunity that I've had for like a better life for granted because I always felt like I was just one decision or one opportunity removed from not being educated or growing up in a village. If my dad didn't leave uh, when he did to go to school, I may have been born in a village and my, my future in my life would have been very different. Right. So that was always in my mind. It was just like, I didn't know what I was going to be able to do. So once I came to the U.S., my brother is a serial entrepreneur and we kind of started talking about what else do I want to do? apart from modeling and my passion is in, you know, making sure that people who live in poverty have equitable access to education um, and women to have access to economic opportunities. I mean, obviously I wasn't able to like describe it like that eloquently like 10 years ago, but those are the things I was interested in. So it really was kind of like a process of trying to figure out, okay, this is what I'm interested in, but what can I do about it? Then I, um, then he was like, you should start a nonprofit. And I'm like, what? (laughs) (laughs) And I said, okay. And, um, and then, you know, I was very naive and young. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, hearing you talk about the educational gap, I, I I was born in Addis and I came, um, in 2000 to the States. And I always think about, Fortunately, my mother, my parents have already moved to, to America by then. So they were sending money for me to go to good schools. But I was always conscious that, you know, I lived in a good beat, like that th- my neighbors didn't have the same equal opportunities that I did. And I always think about like out of them, like only one person, which is me, had the opportunity to receive ed- this education and come to the States. And I think about how privileged I am in that sense. Um, and I also think about how privileged, how a lot of privileged Ethiopians also live in Ethiopia um, and that can go to these private institutions and then have the opportunity to like come to school in America. And that, um, that creates a widening gap of systematic poverty in Addis. And so like, I I think understanding that privilege is so important because we can go and and get back in a sense. Absolutely. Because, you know, the thing is, we, we come from a country that's been stricken by poverty for a very long time, right? So it's very hard for people to accept their privilege, even when they have it. Right. Because uh, then it's like, well, I worked hard for it, or like my parents worked hard for it. But the reality is, it doesn't matter if the, your parents worked hard for it or not. What matters is that, you know, by just the luck of being born to a specific family, the kids next door may not have what you have. And that proximity is important because I think oftentimes if you come from a family of means, you don't live anywhere around poor people. You're told to not talk to poor people. You're, um, so you don't really understand. And, and, because, like, um, and because a lot of uh, Ethiopians who end up, having a very good life and sending their kids to really good schools in Ethiopia and then sending them abroad, have the opportunity to basically remove themselves from the poverty that exists in the country. Right. The, the children grow up without having any understanding of what it really means to live in Ethiopia because they're not experiencing any of those day-to-day challenges. Mm-hmm. And the parents probably worked hard to get to the, where they are, so they feel like they deserve this 
this new fancy beautiful life they have right um and they don't really think like and it's not that we don't do enough to educate our children about the privilege they have and and then um but i think for me and it sounds like for you because i had the proximity that i i these are my friends these are not kids that i i didn't know of or just kids that are like random kids like these are kids that i grew up with they're my friends they were neighbors like next door neighbors so that creates a very different understanding about their challenges their struggles and then you know when i was capable of kind of making those comparisons had like the maturity to do so it was interesting to see like where my life is and where they are and it would be easy for me to say that's happened because i worked hard and i'm smart and whatever but in reality i had a massive leg up right um so you know for me i just wanted to create that leg up for for other people absolutely you know take us take us back to like the inception of seed um like when you started it what what did you want to be sure was absolutely like the core and the mission and the value that embodied seed and you because you are you are essentially the reflection of your organization sure um <clears throat> so for me one was one of the most important things was to not go in with a solution mm-hmm. um because aid has felt Ethiopia and the rest of Africa because people go in with solutions in mind to problems they didn't fully understand. So the most important thing to, for me in the beginning was to come with humility and know what I'm good at, which is I am good at um, galvanizing resources and putting people together. Uh, I'm good at listening. I do understand what that problem is that people face, but I don't know what it is like. So I can't say I can solve it without understanding what does it feel like to have to make a decision to send one of your two kids to school. We can easily criticize and say oh people always send their boys and keep their girls at home because they are sexist. But let's just break it down like we don't know what that decision sound like we have no understanding of like what pe- positions people get put into to make these very difficult decisions between feeding their kids and putting their kids in school or not being able to send all of their kids to school right and having to choose who goes to school mm-hmm. who's going to make the best decision in that like nobody can but you know so like knowing that was very important to me so going in knowing the problem i wanted to solve for was poverty right but understanding that solving poverty is very complicated because poverty is complicated and poverty is expensive so going in with an open mind to learn from the people that I want to serve was and understand what they're going through and see what solutions they have in mind and oftentimes they have the solutions in mind they just don't have the resources mm-hmm. so that was really like the first like and most important thing for me and then the other was to keep the dignity of people and to keep their um to never show them in a like you have to raise money right so to never show them in a way that takes away their dignity mm-hmm. to always show them in the in the light to show their humanity to show their complexity because sometimes when we think of poverty it we think it's monolithic and it, everybody's like the same and like it's not like you can be a poor person who is brilliant and who has all these different ideas and who loves to do art or whatever like you can be a, a fully like poverty does not exclude you from those things like it may you may not have those opportunities so to really make sure that we present the people that we serve in their full reality and not as helpless victims like the way like unicef and whatever like post and be like help this poor child that can't like feed themselves like right. i just didn't really want that like because i thought like I didn't want to raise money by making people feel sorry for others. I wanted to raise money by making people feel the hope there is to change somebody's life. Mm. I think like the last thing that was important to me was I wanted to create a program that centered itself around the people we serve and not the people who give us money. Mm. I love that. So that was and like it's not it wasn't popular to do that. It's not popular even now because people think of their clients as the people who give them money but then what happens is everything they do is to please those who give money 
But to me, I didn't start this project to please funders. I started this project because I want to change lives of people. So that's what's important to me. And that, that's really like, those are the things that were like deep in my kind of in my heart. And I think if we, to your point, if we continue to please the clients who we assume to be, um, you know, our, our purpose, we continue to perpetually um, engrave poverty because we're not focusing our solution towards the population that we're trying to serve. Exactly. I think that's such a beautiful concept to understand. And to your point, not a lot of people really center because the reality is you need funding to withstand your organization and your nonprofit. But I mean, it's, it's probably, I don't know, naive for me to think to say, but like, I look forward to the days where we don't have to keep raising funds to help people and like give them equitable access yeah. and equal opportunities. Yeah. But again, like that is a very like utopia world that, um, that is, um, that might not be ever true, but I do think shifting that mindset is so important, especially in the not. I mean, shifting the power dynamic is really important. I've been very passionate about talking about that over the past several years. I've written numerous articles, spoken at numerous conferences just about the power dynamic that exists between those who give money and those who have to raise money and how that perpetuates colonialism. It perpetuates all the bad things about capitalism and it perpetuates the, the wealth gap in the world and everything else. So how do we, but like, you know, philanthropy is not going to go away and there's a lot of money in philanthropy. So the question then becomes, how do we really shift mindsets right. and how do we, and to me that meant early on and even today, there are people in organizations that we wouldn't get funding from. We wouldn't want to because we were not value aligned. Mm. So it, it comes at a cost, but it's, it's necessary to, to have values that you're willing to stand by, to stand by regardless of how they may affect your like bottom line. Yeah. No, yeah. here you see that makes me think about like my personal, so I work in philanthropy and I always think about like, it's great. I get to be in a line of service to a lot of people around this world. I get to be in a line of service to Ethiopians and, and the, my division does that. But I, I start thinking about, especially as I think about like my long-term plans, how do we become in a place where we re-strategize the people that we're giving this funding to, to like sustain themselves and like not be recipient of aid all the time. And I think it is, this is like a wider conversation, like globally. Um, but I firmly believe if we continue to giving aid, like we're continuing to, again, capitalism, colonialism, like create codependence on our funders. And that's just, I mean, it's, it's hard because I do work in this space and you, and I mean, like you, you raise capital, but it's a very interesting dynamic to always be stuck in. No, absolutely. And like, that's why, for example, with my work, I wanted to focus on like education or economic development is because at some point that child is not going to need our help anymore. Right. Because they will grow up and they'll go finish school and they'll go be whatever they're supposed to be. And our goal is just to help them be the best that they can be. And then they will be going on. And that's, you know, it, it is a multi-year investment. It takes a very long time to get there. However, it's not a forever investment on one person. And, and it is, it's critical to create systems that change the dynamic. Uh, not just continue to perpetuate um, the, the power. I absolutely agree. Yeah. And you, and you talked about earlier like how individuals may have to like make the decision and like, sacrifice of feeding one's family versus sending their child to education, uh, to school. And I think a lot of that decision is upon mothers um, who are the caretakers and yeah. the caregivers of our family, especially culturally. Um, but I think it's what you do and sees is have included them in your plans to be independent. Um, can you just tell me a little bit about what you do in there? Yeah, sure. So when we thought of the education program, that's because, you know, so the goal is, okay, how do we, I don't like the word help. How do we facilitate for people to escape poverty is the main goal, right? Then you look at, okay, so what are the things that, cause those issues one is lack of education so we wanted to address that by working in education um but then the other part is women don't have economic opportunities and what we see is like and and this has been proven in the u.s as well like it doesn't matter how many scholarship programs you create how many 
uh, after school programs you create, how many support programs you create for kids. If the home life is not taken care of, that kid still has to go home. They have to live at home. And if their home is unstable because of poverty, if their family is under stress, that causes stress on the kid, which means that kid is not going to succeed. So whatever you're doing on the side, it's just kind of like pouring water on like rocks. Like it's not going to go anywhere. So it really was looking at like, how do we create like a holistic model that helps the whole, to, to uplift the whole family? And, you know, mothers are the backbones of every family. And oftentimes mothers in poverty work hard, much harder than any of us can ever imagine. They are taking multiple jobs at a time to support their kids. Um, they're entrepreneurs, so they may have a full-time job. And then when they come home, they're going to sell dinner and carrot on the side, or they're going to do something else to subsidize their income. So it was just looking at like, how can we help increase their um, household income and improve their quality of life? That way, if the kid is supported to go to school and they get the healthcare and the uniforms and school supplies and everything they need to go to school. And then on the other side, the mom is supported to make more money, then you're kind of like creating a positive feedback loop in the family. And there's a more like an idea of prosperity in the family and there's a positive attitude and attitudes are important. Hope is important. Hope is very necessary because it is not easy to, to escape poverty. Poverty is hard. It's hard to leave it because it is so generational in our community and it's ingrained in the culture, unfortunately, and in the way we stratify people that it takes a lot for a family to come out of that. Mm -hmm. So it was really to figure out like in our own small way, how can we create an environment that empowers everybody in the family? That way, you know, a mom who's illiterate learns how to read eventually and then she can read for her kids or her kids can read for her. So we're not, you know, so you're kind of creating like, and, and again, like when we started this, it was not popular. Everybody was telling us you need to focus on one thing and one thing only, but it was impossible to just focus on one thing because you're seeing all of this. Like, how do you turn a blind eye when you know that families are struggling and you know that these women have incredible ideas for businesses. They have talent. They go work at restaurants. Why don't we help them start a small restaurant for themselves? Mm. So like it was really just kind of like, and, and, and the way our, so because of that, the way our community development program works is when someone's child is accepted to our school, they, the mother gets the opportunity to be a part of the economic development program. So if she wants to take trainings, she can take trainings from adult literacy to financial literacy to uh, entrepreneurship. And then if she wants to start a business, we will help her put together a business plan and we'll fund it if it's a viable business plan. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, like we don't do skills training because the women have skills. They, they don't need skills training oftentimes. Mm -hmm. It's just understanding what skill do they have that can be monetized. Absolutely. So that's kind of like how we kind of like come around it. And that really is coming again from, uh, not coming in thinking like they don't know anything and they need our help. No, like they actually don't need anybody's help. It's just that if we help them, they will do so much better because poor women know how to survive and I, they survive all the time, but I don't want to just see them survive. I would like for them to thrive. So it's really just like, how do you facilitate for them to thrive? Right. It's sort of re-strategizing their skills. Like you said, yeah have skills like fundamental skills it's categorizing what that skill is monetizing what that skill is and I think you know hearing you talk about this I, I want to dig deeper on I think Africa is in a very unique place in general because yeah. we have sort of what I like to call like leapfrogged um, innovation and technology and really have skipped like basic things that you know the developed world has gone through whether it's like landlines and like cable and like all that stuff and yeah. gone like mobile banking cell phones streaming and have really like really accepted and embraced innovation and i think i think women are at the forefront of like accepting this innovation because they want to be independent they want to have their own business they want to be you know have their own money independent of their husband and not be dependent. And I think like focusing on 
creating that sustainability for women is so integral to the success of not just themselves, but their family. And I think in general, it will be so instrumental in, in the success of our continent, you know? And I'm grateful in a sense that we have, we're part of that journey. And I think we will continue to be part of that journey. Yeah. And so that it's, that's really great to hear. Thank you. Yeah. I know like we're in a very tricky time, like with COVID and when I think about school in Addis Ababa and COVID, I think about how, like, how is this, you know, how are we going to move forward? Because a lot of students have taken on to do virtual learning and when I think about the infrastructure of virtual learning, um, I think it may be done here, but I find it to, it's, it will be difficult to do in Abisawa with our lack of internet and light. Um, how, how has TD able to tackle this problem? What are you guys doing to be innovative in addressing this issue? So school in, in person starts tomorrow for the first time since March. Um, yes. We have been preparing for this moment since the day school opened, I mean closed back in March. Okay. The number of um, things I've researched and my team has researched is like, I can't even count between the CDC here, looking at Norway that has had a very high success rate in reopening schools back in the spring, like in late April, early May, and just looking at different ways that um, different countries have managed to open, reopen schools without, without um, having a major outbreak. So we did a lot of work preparing for that, which included we're separating our students into pods. So there will be two different pods where half of the kids will come two days a week, the other come three days a week, and then they kind of flip every week. Um, We've had to create, we've had to build new furniture because we don't want kids to share tables anymore and like this, so they can be distanced. We had to shift the whole school around. We had to, to stop our lunch program because it's risky to have kids in the same room sitting together. So we had to move that into like a grab and go snack, which would just be like crackers and fruit that they can just pick during break times. We created these like bands where like each, each group of students would be in, um, in their own group. So when they go out from class for break, they're not necessarily allowed to mix with other kids. Um, so just kind of like all of like the best practices that we can find that have worked elsewhere. And, and our team have, been, have done a great job of kind of create, taking that and creating manuals, doing training. We spent weeks doing like staff orientation and then we had to bring in, orient the families. And then tomorrow, Monday and Tuesday, we'll be doing orientation with just the kids before they actually start school to make sure they understand all these, because this is their kids. Like, this is absolutely crazy that this is the way we tell them they have to be in school. They can't hug each other. They can't play the same way. Like, it's very hard. So just kind of like trying to figure all of that out has been a challenge, but also an opportunity. Remember, I'm a nerd and I love reading. So this has been great times just to like, you know, it's a new challenge to figure out. And, you know, we want to do the best we can with the very limited resources we have. But prior to that, when school closed back in March, we, you know, now we all are somewhat used to COVID, even have COVID fatigue, whatever that is supposed to mean. But, you know, I think we all remember like how panicked we all were back in February, March, when it was just coming around. And I was, luckily I was in Ethiopia, like I was telling you earlier when we were just catching up. Um, So I was in Ethiopia between January and August this year. So that was actually like a blessing in disguise that I was closer to the program and I can be more of a support on the ground. The government closed schools very quickly, which was necessary. And I think it is one of the reasons why the cases haven't skyrocketed in Ethiopia. So we had to figure out how to do this. Uh, How do we do virtual education with 250 students who do not have internet? They do not have computers. Maybe 10 kids in our school would have computers. And those are like kids whose parents have jobs that give them computers probably. So it's not really their own computer. So how do you do this? And it was um, a lot of kind of just like, what the hell? Like in the beginning, it was just like, what the hell are we going to do? Yeah. Then, um, then we kind of, you know, we 
we took a week off. We needed, we gave everybody a week to just acclimate at home, our staff. The way we really did it was, so I knew lockdowns were going to come. Like I, I was very like when, when the cases got out of China, I was like, okay, I, we've never seen this happen before, but I really listened to like the WHO saying this is going to be a global pandemic and we made up to close down borders. I took that seriously. A lot of people were still like in denial, but like somehow like maybe it's my upbringing in Ethiopia and having gone through war and stuff like that. I was like, okay, this is real. Let's prepare for it. So we actually started training our staff before the first case was announced in Ethiopia on just COVID. Like, so just what is COVID? How does it get transmitted? And they were all laughing at me and they're like, oh, it's never going to happen here. And I'm like, it's coming. Trust me, it's coming. Let's just be prepared when it does. Because there was also this like, all these conspiracy theories that it's not going to affect black people or it's not going to affect Africans or whatever. So we did a lot of that in the beginning. And then as soon as school closed, then we're like, okay, what do we do now? What do we do for our kids? Right before we closed, we made sure that all of our key staff had, would take laptops from the school and we bought data plans for them so that they can be connected at home. So we did that like a week and a half before school was closing. We were just kind of like anticipating this might come. So, you know, there's these like thumb things you can put on your computer that connect with the internet there and you buy data for it. So we did that. That way, the day school was closed, my five top and team members could be online from home. So then we can do our Zoom calls or our Skype, our weekly check-ins. We can plan things. Then we started to, to like have, uh, we did weekly calls and I suggested we start calling kids. And they were like, no, that's crazy. <laughs> 250 kids. And I was like, yeah, we're going to pay everybody. They're yeah. going to stay home. So they need to do something. And I thought it was also good for everybody to be connected. At that point for me, education wasn't the most important part at that specific moment. It was really mental health mm. and the sense of belonging and the sense of being cared for. Right. So how do we, like a seed at seeds, if you came to our school, you can feel that sense of belonging and that sense of family and that sense of care we have for our students, the way they, can, they, they uh, talk to their teachers, the way they communicate with the, the staff. There's a, a family feel. So it was really like, how do we translate that out? It was really my first priority. I wasn't worried about the education part. And the reason is honestly, like I've gone through war in Ethiopia where we didn't have school for six months and look where we are. It's fine. We can survive that. Right. right. But the um, psycho psychological impact is worse. Yeah. So then we were like, okay, so how do we make this work? They all think, thought I was crazy. They're like, you're nuts. But I was like, no, I think we can make it work. So then, you know, we basically took, we have about 15 to 16 teachers. And then we have about five so, um, admin staff that are, you know, that usually work with the kids because they're like, you know, they sent them home and they're sick or whatever. So we had about 20 people and we split Basically, each person was assigned. This took us like maybe two weeks to put together. So by the three weeks after COVID was announced and schools were closed, we've already launched a virtual program. Wow. Yeah. But what we did was basically like each person, whether they were a teacher or an admin staff member, they were given a list of students. And that was the list they worked through the whole time. So you had a list of 10 or a list of 15. And every week we will give um, phone data to all of our staff that were required to make calls to the kids. And in the first two weeks, we just created basic questions like, how are you doing? What are you doing at home? How's your family? Do you know about COVID? Like, and then, you know, you also had to call the parents first and like say, this is from the school. We would like to make weekly calls figure out when the family can allocate time to allow that kid to be on a call with us. So we created basically like a phone virtual system. Then once that was established and, you know, enough, um, and, and, and you have to remember like this required 
work we've done in the past, which is we have all the data on every student. We have their phone number, we have their address, we know where they live, we know how many family members they have. So we have, so this is when it comes in handy. Like you never know when your data is going to be useful. But we used that to really just like, in the first few weeks, we just called kids and checked on them, made sure that they knew how to wash their hands and protect themselves and where masks became a thing, make sure that they were wearing masks and answer any questions they had. They just loved that we called them more than anything. Like they were just happy that we care about them and that we weren't going to like forget about them. Mm-hmm. And that was like, to me, the most important part. Wow. So you basically launched a virtual uh, mobile curriculum. Yeah. Then after like doing that for a couple of weeks, we were able to embed more things to it. So we made it a little bit more complex where we were giving them like journaling exercises. Wow. So they were like, so they're supposed to bring all their journals when school opens so that we can learn what they were like writing about. But we started giving them journal prompts so they can use. And we told them which book to use. We were like, use your English exercise book to journal and just like write what you were thinking about every day. And then when we call you next week, you'll tell us what you wrote. Then from there, it went into giving them things to read and saying, then we aggregated by grade and we'll tell them, read pages X to X on your book. And then I'll check in on you. So it just kind of became more like a coaching yeah. program and then finally when the lockdowns were like not as strict and people could move around a little bit more we created printouts became very popular in Ethiopia where you print out like uh, lesson plans and then families come pick it up wow. they take it home and that would be like lesson plans for two weeks or three weeks or whatever you can do and then when you call the kids you're just kind of following through on the lesson plan and then Additionally to that, we found that the Ethiopian government has a um, TV and radio programming for education. Mm-hmm. So not all of our students have TVs, but most of them have radio. So then we download them, but they don't understand the scheduling. So then we started like downloading the schedules. And then when, when a teacher calls you, if you're a student, they'll say like, hey, Lily, so on Thursday at 2 p.m., there's a science class on Ethiopian television. So make sure you watch that for an hour minimum and take notes. So when I call you next week, I'm going to ask you what you learned from that. So we kind of really used it for months until the, the summer to just keep the kids engaged. Yeah. How awesome is it to meet the like, kids where they are instead of like, you know, it would have been easy for you to say like, I don't even know how to tackle this. I've never been in a situation where I had to virtually educate a population that does not reflect the technology that you and I both grew up with. Yeah. Yeah. But also, like, what an awesome thing to set. Like, you said, basically set a foundation, a bedrock for, like, virtual learning. It, it may not be using, like, laptops, but, like, you know, like we said earlier, like, mobiles are really important. Yeah. All accessible and can easily be distributed. Um, yeah, and you, you, you have to meet people where they are. Right. And, and for me, what was important was, like, I can't sit and wait for this to blow over. Like, I, like, I was just like, we can't do that. What are we going to, what are we waiting for? Like, it's like, like sitting like a lame duck, like just, so I was thinking like, you know, and what I had to tell our team, like, and the way I was motivating everybody was we don't have to figure out what we're doing two weeks from now. We just need to know what we can do this week. Then we'll figure out what we can do next week. Cause if you remember things were so volatile yeah, that you can't plan, we couldn't plan. So it was like a week by week. So we created where like every Monday we talk, we create the plan for the week. The calls start on Wednesdays, they end on Fridays. And then you talk about them over the weekend and then you go back on them on Monday again. It was just kind of, you just have to take one step at a time. And I think that's just like how you can be resilient is, you know, you're not always going to have all the resources. Obviously, I wish we had all the resources and we had all the computers and all our kids were connected. And I'm sure if we did that, we probably would have been in the New York Times for like the school that's like the most connected on the continent or whatever. Yeah. But in reality, what's most important is just for people to feel like the world is not forgetting about them because things got harder. Absolutely. Wow. Yeah, no, I think that's fantastic. And now you get to, schools open tomorrow. Yeah, it opens tomorrow. 
It might be open now considering we're on the up. Uh, yeah. So they're getting, you know, they open tomorrow and we did a, like, um, our first school supply drive in Ethiopia. So we've been raising like items on the ground. Mm. Uh, so people have been donating exercise books and school supplies and PPE. Like we had corporations who gave us like masks and sanitizers and soap. So just kind of like, doing all of that. So yeah, tomorrow is first day. I wish I was there, um, but I'll be going in like three weeks. So I look forward to kind of seeing what it looks like. On the ground. It's, yeah. You, know, you talked about like donations and, you know, I just want to, you know, I think this would be our last questions, but end on like as a diaspora, as, you know, communities of the Ethiopian um, diaspora, how can we support you? Um, how, how do we elevate you as a leader? But how do we also support SEED um, in continuing that the work that you guys are doing? Thank you. So, you know, uh, this year has been hard yeah. for everyone, and we're not unique in that. It's uh, globally, small businesses are falling apart left and right. Um, in the U.S., there's, the statistics shows that about 30% of nonprofits will go under or will go out of business this year. And we're working very hard to be, not become that statistic. Um, so I personally had to furlough myself so that I can keep everything going. And that's just because for me, the work is important and the work has to keep going. And we've raised less than 50% of what we raise every year this year. So that's a huge, a huge cut. But, you know, we're frugal. We worked hard. We cut costs so much back in March, just when it all started, because we anticipated this would come. And we're just making sure that the kids we educate continue to have the support they need. And the way, you know, the way you and other Ethiopians in the diaspora, like myself and like you, can be supportive is, one is we just need money. We are going to continue the school and we're trying to figure out right now in what way do we make, like, how do we make sure that we continue this work because 2021 is not going to be easy. I know we all want 2020 to be over, but 2021 is still going to be a challenge because we're still in the midst of the pandemic and it hasn't gone away yet. So it really is, we just need all the support we can get and there's nothing, no gift is too small. And the other part is if any of the people who listen to this have family and friends in Ethiopia, then on the Ethiopia side, people can give us items. We look for books and pencils and pens, things like that, to make sure that we don't spend money buying stuff so that we can use the money just to pay for our staff and like kind of like keep, you know, keep that going. I also want to say, you know, during this time, we've managed to keep 55 people employed in Ethiopia for the last nine months. Wow. And that was very important to us because in the U.S. there is the safety net, there is the government support, uh, people can f apply for unemployment. It may not be a lot, but there's something. In Ethiopia, if you lose your job, that's it. So it was very important for us to keep our team together. So we kept our entire team employed through COVID and we're very proud of that because our work is not possible without the people. And it is impossible for, one, we don't want people to suffer, and that includes the teachers who work for us right. and the staff who work for us, the women who clean and make food for the kids. And the other part is also we know that we've invested in this team and we don't want to lose the team because it's, you can't just bring people back. Like it's, that's just not how it works. And we're seeing it here in the U.S. Once things are wiped out, it's very hard to, to like restart them again. So, um, you know, monetary support is always necessary, but the other is just opportunities, you know, especially for people who work in philanthropy or people who work with corporations. They don't have to be just corporations in, in the U.S., but especially actually in Ethiopia. We've, we're seeing some success now with some partnerships we're doing to get um, companies to donate items for us so that uh, that's for us, like, that's money because then we use the money for something else. Right. And... Also, just lift us up, share our story, tell people about us, um, and 
you know, stay. Uh, I would love for people to sign up and go on our website, www.seedsofafrica.org. And we have a newsletter. It's only once a month. We don't um, bombard your inbox. But, or just follow us on social. I think we do a pretty good job in um, updating people on social and keeping the young people involved there. And, and the other is when COVID is out and travel is possible, I really want to encourage the Ethiopian, young Ethiopians in the diaspora to go to Ethiopia, mm-hmm. to volunteer somewhere, to really see like, what it is like for people to live there in poverty and to, to be helpful, not just to us, but just generally like our country needs us. This is a time where our country is um, going through a lot of issues and you know, my heart goes out to everybody who's affected. But it also is a time for all of us to come together and to, to lift up Ethiopia. You know, we have a lot of promise. It's a beautiful place with 110 million mostly young and capable people that just need opportunity. So, you know, young people like you who are working here, you know, I hope that 10 years from now you can go and like maybe live in Ethiopia for like five years. And Listen, that's my plan, God's willing. So um, I absolutely, I, I think hearing you say like having the opportunity to visit is so important for me. Like I'm so grateful for my mother who sent me ever since I came, not ever since the time after I moved to, Adi, uh, to America, every summer she sent me back home and I have such vivid memory but so much love for for ethiopia Um, and it has everything to do and more as to who i am as a person today and who i want to be and the mission i have to sustain and help ethiopia from a health equity perspective and the reason why i do the work i do now and so i think it's such an important work that you do and we're grateful for you um i'm sure you don't get enough of it but thank you ati i think this is an incredible opportunity to have you on Lessa, but also just the work that you're doing is so important. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And and what you're doing is important to bring Ethiopian voices out and and have us um, give us the opportunity to talk to other Ethiopians. You know, I used to get that when we would have our annual events. It was my favorite time where like we get a lot of Ethiopians to come, but you know, it's COVID time and we can't really do that. So this is a really incredible opportunity and Thank you and keep up. Uh, I look forward to listening to this and all of the other beautiful ones you do. Uh, Thank you. I appreciate it.